When I moved to Indiana, I moved to Indiana less than a week after I graduated from college. And so when I moved, I had to get a new driver's license. I lived in Kentucky before, and I was moving to Indiana. And in order to get the new driver's license, I had to take again the written portion of the driver's test. Now, I was 22 at the time, so I had six years of driving experience under my belt. I had a pretty good driving record overall. I'd put some mileage in. And so I kind of thought to myself, you know, if anything, I should be better at this test than I was six years ago. Even if I don't study, I've been driving for six years. I've seen some things. I am more able to pass this test now than I was before. So, of course, I don't need to study. I've been doing this for a while now. Of course, as you can probably guess, I failed the test. There were finer details of driving that I had completely forgotten. There were obscure signs that I had no idea what they meant when I saw them on the piece of paper. There were rules that rarely ever come into practice, scenarios of what do you do if this happens, and I had no clue how to answer those questions. I learned the hard way that sometimes we think we have something down because we've done it for so long, or we've heard it so many times, And we think that we're not missing anything. We think that we've mastered that subject or that topic or that skill. But the truth is that if we had to take a test, we discover that we know a lot less than we actually thought we did. Sometimes we're guilty of the same thing when it comes to the story of Jesus or the story of Scripture. If you're a Christian, you've been around for a lot of Easter's. Maybe you've heard a lot of sermons. You've watched a lot of CNN specials about who Jesus is that just happened to creep up right around this time of year. But part of the beauty of Scripture is that it seems as though no matter how many times we read it, we never stop learning. We learn something new. We discover that we didn't know the story quite as well as we thought we did. Even a story like Jesus' death and resurrection. So for the next two weeks, we're simply going to read the story. Today we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we read, maybe you'll discover things that you never noticed before. Maybe you'll remember something that you forgot. Or maybe this is the first time that you've actually taken time to simply read what Scripture says about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Today we'll start with the triumphal entry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. We're going to look at some of the key events that preceded it, what the triumphal entry meant, what the triumphal entry didn't mean, and the unexpected challenge that I believe it levels at us today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We're going to be in several different chapters of Matthew, getting a context for the triumphal entry. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 700. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read Matthew 16, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, many of us have heard what you sent your son to do for us multiple times. We've been to Sunday school classes, we've been to church camps, we've been to VBSs, we've been to Sunday morning services, we've been to conferences, all kinds of things. And God, sometimes we hear it so many times that 
we kind of become a little desensitized to it. Maybe we're a little less in awe of it. Maybe we think that we know it better than we actually do. But God, I pray that we would find value in just reading the story this week and next week. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, open hearts, open minds to what it is that your word and what it is that your spirit have to teach us this morning. God, thank you for Palm Sunday. Thank you that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And thank you for everything that we'll be celebrating in the coming week. God, we love you. We praise, praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start by reading Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So we start out with Jesus asking his disciples a simple question. Who do people say that I am? After all, for some time now, lots of people have been gathering around Jesus. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him perform healings. They've heard all kinds of teachings. They've seen the way he lives. And after all they've seen, all they've witnessed, Jesus asked the disciples, what are these people saying? What's the buzz about who I am? What are the rumors about who I am? What do these people believe? Well, the disciples respond with several different answers. There's no clear consensus about who Jesus is. Some people think he's a prophet. Some people think he's John the Baptist. Some people just aren't really 100% sure. They seem to agree that he's a religious figure of some sort, a religious figure of some importance, but they can't exactly agree on the details. Let's pick up in verse 15. Jesus says there, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So at first Jesus asked the disciples, who are the crowds? saying that I am. But now he changes gears. He puts them on the spot and he says, all right, guys, who do you say I am? It's kind of one of those moments where you're in a classroom and the teacher asks the question and you kind of think you know the answer, but you're kind of scared to answer. So you're wondering if somebody else will answer. Well, finally, Peter answers. He has the guts to speak up. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Those words are referred to as the good confession. And Jesus praises Peter for the confession. He says that this saying truly came from God. This was revealed to Peter by God. This wasn't just his own wisdom. This wasn't just him putting two and two together. God revealed this to him. Jesus compares Peter to a rock, saying that Peter will play a huge role in God establishing his church, which you see 
all throughout the book of Acts. Peter is almost always at the center of the action. But then Jesus tells the disciples and he tells Peter, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the son of the living God. Why in the world would Jesus tell them to keep it a secret? Doesn't that fly directly in the face of everything we're taught about the Great Commission and go out and make disciples and make Jesus famous and tell people who he is and what he's done? Why would Jesus tell them to keep quiet? Well, we'll get into that in just a minute. But before we go any farther, it's important to understand this passage, what we just read, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, is a massive turning point in Jesus's ministry. From this point forward in the Gospels, Jesus' teaching is quite different than it had ever been before. And we see that nowhere better than picking right up in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So the moment after Jesus praises Peter for proclaiming him as the Christ, as the Messiah, Jesus immediately talks about going to Jerusalem. And specifically, he starts talking about going to Jerusalem, not just for a trip, not just for a vacation. He's going to Jerusalem to face his own death. He specifically tells them that he will suffer, that he will die, and he will be raised. Now, of course, understandably, Peter objects to this. Peter pulls Jesus aside. The word there indicates that Peter is physically moving Jesus aside. You can picture Peter poking his finger in Jesus' chest, saying, Jesus, this will never happen to you. May it never be. Why is Peter objecting to it? Well, it's not that hard to figure out. Peter loves Jesus. They've eaten together. They've laughed together. They've cried together. They've traveled together. Peter has left everything to follow Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's followed him in the fullest sense of the word. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer. He doesn't want Jesus to die. Jesus is his Lord, but at this point, Peter might even call Jesus his friend, his brother. Jesus is loved by Peter, and so Peter objects. But there's also another reason why Peter would object to Jesus going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying. In a man like Peter's mind, messiahs don't die. Christ don't get killed. The Son of God, he doesn't lose the way Jesus seems to be indicating he will. In Peter's mind, if someone claims to be the Messiah, claims to be the Christ, and then they end up getting killed, all that proves is that they weren't the Christ after all. They were either lying Or they were insane. Peter cannot understand how one minute Jesus can say, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the son of the living God. God has revealed these things to you. And then the next minute say, well, now I'm going to suffer and now I'm going to die. 
Peter doesn't understand how these two things can possibly be true. What's Jesus going to say? Look at verse 23 of Matthew 16. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So even though Peter is trying to save his Lord from suffering, to save his Lord from death, trying to talk some sense into Jesus, Jesus responds harshly. He refers to Peter as Satan. He tells him to get out of the way, that he is a stumbling block. He is a hindrance to what God would have him do. Why would Jesus be so harsh? Peter loves him. Peter cares for him. Can you really blame him? Jesus is harsh because Peter's priorities are not God's priorities. Clearly, Jesus and Peter are on very different wavelengths when it comes to what Jesus' mission is all about. Peter's concerned about his Lord. He's concerned about his friend, but he's also confused about what the Messiah is supposed to do. And we'll continue to see that as we move forward. There's division. There are different ideas between Jesus and Peter and presumably the rest of the disciples. So what's Jesus going to do now? Is he just going to leave the confusion, the division existing? No. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's almost as if Jesus is stopping the disciples and saying, All right, guys, clearly we're not on the same page here. Let's make something clear. Let's make sure that we're all in agreement about what following me is really all about. Jesus says, in following me, you are denying yourself. Your dreams, your plans, your ambitions, your priorities, your interests, your comfort. You're denying every single one of these things. These things now take a back seat if you're going to deny yourself. That's what following me looks like. And then he says, well, you might as well give these things up anyway. These dream, excuse me, dreams and ambitions and desires and hopes because you're taking up a cross anyway. Back then, the only time you would ever take up a cross is if you were marching to your own execution. So your dreams, your plans, your ambitions, your comfort, your priorities, those things don't really matter now anyway. You might as well deny yourself because you're taking up a cross. You're walking to your own death. And then Jesus said, you're following me. You're following me wherever I lead you. Not where your preconceived notions say I'm supposed to lead you. Not where you want me to lead you. Not where you think I should lead you. You are following me wherever I lead you. 
So let me be clear. Following me is not about power. It's not about glory and prestige and influence and clout and comfort in this life. If you want to pursue those things, great, but you're forfeiting your soul. Just be aware of that. So deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Peter. Disciples, you and I. That's what Jesus is saying. He is making it crystal clear what following him is about. Now, if you're a bystander on the road and you see this conversation happening, you might be thinking, well, that was awkward. That was a little bit of a rant. Clearly, he had enough of these disciples. I imagine it might have been a somewhat silent walk for the rest of that day after that little outburst from Jesus. But on the bright side, maybe the disciples understand now. Maybe they have a better picture of what it means to follow him. Well, let's continue the story. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, jumping ahead in this gospel. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So we saw one prediction, and here we see a second prediction, very similar to the last one, but with a little bit more detail. This time around, Jesus says that he'll be delivered into the hands of men. That hints at betrayal. He then reiterates that he will be killed and he will be raised. As a result, the disciples are distressed. They don't say anything because They saw what happened to Peter when he said something, when he spoke up. They saw how Jesus laid into him. It's also interesting to notice that they seem much more concerned and much more attentive to Jesus' talking about suffering and dying and don't really seem to think a whole lot about Jesus' claims of being raised. But nonetheless, they're on edge, they're distressed, they're worried. They're probably still confused, but they don't want to say anything because they saw what happened to Peter. Jump forward to Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, the third and final prediction. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Third and final prediction. And again, we see more detail. This time around, Jesus includes that his death will be at the hands of the Gentiles. He goes into more detail about his suffering, that he will be mocked and flogged. But he also adds one more crucial detail in this prediction. He doesn't just vaguely say he'll be killed or that he'll die. This time around, he says he'll be crucified. I'd imagine at this point, the disciples start thinking back to that whole take up your cross thing in Matthew chapter 16. Back then, during that little outburst, maybe they thought, well, Jesus is just annoyed. 
Jesus is just frustrated with us. And so he's kind of exaggerating a little bit. He's just trying to get his point across by saying stuff like, take up your cross and follow me. But now he's saying that he's actually going to be crucified. And he told us that we are to follow him and take up our crosses too. What if he wasn't just using that as a figure of speech? What if he was serious? Can he really expect his disciples to go to a cross with him? To go to a cross for him? Would he really ask that of his people? Either way, by now you'd think that the disciples would have a much better understanding of why Jesus was going to Jerusalem and what he expects of them and what's going to happen there. He's clearly explained what following him is all about. No holds barred. Three separate times he has specifically said what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. Surely they understand now. No more excuses. No more confusion. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So James and John and Mom make a request. They want to have positions of power and authority when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. When you see that request, you start to see just a little bit more and more what those preconceived notions of Jesus really are. Who Jesus is and what he would do. Maybe as we hear things like this, we understand a little bit more why Jesus would say, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Because clearly people have some expectations of what the Messiah would look like, what the Christ would do, who Jesus would be. Now, with this request, maybe James and John put their mother up to it. Maybe mom saw some of her own benefit in asking. Maybe it was a little bit of both. But you have to think that by now, Jesus is just a little bit frustrated. All of the teachings, all of the rants, all of the outbursts, They've been in one ear and out the other. Look at verses 22 through 24. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. James and John and Mom are clueless. They've missed everything that Jesus has said up to this point. Jesus has been talking to walls. And the other disciples probably aren't any better. It says that they're indignant at James and John. They're probably just mad that they had the nerve to ask for what the rest of them were already thinking. They're just as confused as James and John are. Jesus has got to be tired of this. Look at verse 
25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, Mom, you've got it all wrong. You're picturing me on a throne? I'm going to a cross. I've already told you that. You're picturing me overthrowing my enemies? Well, guess what? I'm going to die for my enemies. You're picturing me giving you positions of honor? I've already asked you to take up a cross. You're picturing me as a ruler? Well, I'm a servant, giving up my life as a ransom for many. These guys are just as clueless as ever. It seems like they will never understand. But by now, we get to the gates of Jerusalem. All the conversations, all the events, all the teachings have been leading to this moment. Ironically, right after James and John show just how blind they really are to who Jesus is and what Jesus will do, Jesus heals two blind men who can't see. God has a funny way of making those coincidences work out. But the point is that Jerusalem awaits. They're standing at the gates. It all comes down to this. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus procures a donkey. He's in complete control of the situation. He knows exactly where to go, who to ask, how to get the donkey, what that person will say. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. Jesus is orchestrating the whole thing. He rides in on a donkey, citing Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is coming in as a conquering king. That's what the Messiah is. But conquering kings don't ride on donkeys. They ride on beautiful stallions or on intimidating war horses. Jesus doesn't exactly fit the mold that many people would have for him. But nonetheless, he gets a royal welcome. Look at verse 8 of Matthew chapter 21. We read there. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You can picture the parade. Cloaks are thrown on the ground like a red carpet. Palm branches are thrown down too. They're waved in the air. People are cheering. People are chanting, Hosanna, son of David. These are all phrases reserved for royalty, reserved for kings. Why are the crowds so excited? Well, the crowds are so excited because just like Peter, when he rebuked Jesus, Just like all the disciples when they were so distressed about Jesus predicting his death. 
Just like James and John and their mother when they asked for positions of power and glory and prestige. Just like all of those people, these crowds have preconceived notions of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to ride into town. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to put God's people back in charge. They're going to have wealth and influence and a good reputation. They're going to be intimidating to anyone and everyone around them. That's what they expect. That's why they're celebrating. They can't wait for that stuff to happen. But hypothetically, what if they had heard everything the disciples had heard that we just talked about? What if the crowds had heard all that stuff about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him? The predictions of death and suffering, the serving versus the being served, the giving up his life as a ransom. What if the crowds had heard all of that stuff? Do you think the parade would have been as big? Do you think the cloaks would have been thrown down? Do you think the palm branches would have been waved? Probably not. Jesus probably would have received a very different welcome from those crowds. You see, these people have a problem. They're worshiping Jesus and welcoming Jesus because of who they think he is, not because of who he actually is. And sometimes it's scary to think that more often than we like to admit, we might have the exact same problem. How often do we celebrate and welcome the Jesus who fits our desires, who fits our preconceived notions, who caters to our interests? When that Jesus comes into town, we spread out our cloaks, we wave our palm branches, we cheer, we throw a parade. We do that for the Jesus who saves us from our sin, who promises us eternal life, who comforts us when we're suffering, who many believe promises us with wealth and health and prosperity in this life. When that Jesus comes into town, we celebrate. When that Jesus comes into town, we throw a parade. But do we celebrate and welcome the Jesus who challenges our desires? The Jesus who challenges our preconceived notions? The Jesus who challenges our interests and our comfort? Do we spread out our cloaks and wave palm branches and cheer for that Jesus who asked us to deny ourselves? The Jesus who asks us to take up our crosses And to follow him. Do we worship and welcome the Jesus who warns us of the idolatry of our health and our wealth and prosperity? Do we worship and welcome the Jesus who commands us to care for the least of these? What about the Jesus who doesn't promise power and prestige and glory in this life? What about the Jesus who calls us to serve instead of being served? What about the Jesus who speaks regularly about uncomfortable topics like hell? When that Jesus comes into town, do we throw a parade for him? Do we throw down our cloaks? Do we wave our palm branches? Or would we rather just stay home? 
At the very beginning of this sermon, Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? Who do the people say I am? And I believe the challenge for us is to worship Jesus for who he really, truly, fully is. Not who we wish he was. Not the mold that we wish he would fit. Not the preconceived notions that we have. We don't worship the Savior if he would just be a little more politically correct. The Savior who would be just a little bit less intense about the whole no one goes to the Father except through me stuff. The Savior who'd be a little less vocal about things like finances or sexuality or ethics or heaven and hell. We don't worship the Jesus that makes us comfortable. We don't get to choose which Jesus we welcome and which Jesus we throw down our cloaks for and which Jesus we wave the palm branches for. Let's worship Jesus for who he truly and fully is. Because if we only worship and welcome the Jesus who makes us comfortable, then we really aren't worshiping and welcoming him at all. Let's throw down our cloaks. Let's wave the palm branches for the Jesus we see in the Gospels, not the Jesus that we wish we saw in the Gospels. Let's pray. Father, when we read the Gospels, it's just so easy to be taken aback by how untame and undomesticated and unpredictable Jesus can be. He says things that make us uncomfortable. He says things that challenge us. He says things that challenge our culture. God, I pray that we wouldn't attempt to sanitize Jesus, to make him a little more acceptable for us, for the people around us. I pray that we would take Jesus for who he really is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, on his terms, not on our terms. God, I pray that when you challenge us, when you convict us, that we would be open to that, that we wouldn't get defensive, that we wouldn't look for ways to justify our preconceived notions or ways to make things a little bit more digestible. God, I pray that we would worship and welcome Jesus this Easter for who he really and truly is, not who we want him to be, not who we wish he would be, not the mold that we want him to fit. Help us to lay down our cloaks and wave our palm branches and cheer for him. Not the God that we've created in our own image, but rather the Jesus that you sent to die for us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus was a conquering king, even though he wasn't the conquering king that people expected. He was a conquering king nonetheless. He conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered condemnation. He defeated Satan once and for all at the cross. The war has been won, the outcome is sure. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ this morning, I pray that you would make that decision to follow him, that you would make that decision to take up your cross, to deny yourself. 
I pray that you would talk to one of our elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, answer your questions, talk to you about whatever that looks like for you. Maybe you are a Christian. You've been a Christian for so long that you kind of look at the Gospels and you think, well, I've kind of been following the Jesus that I wanted to follow, not the Jesus that we actually read about. They'd be happy to talk to you about that as well. Talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to answer those questions.